famous in the 1950s and 60s. We had this famed uh, rocket cheese in Sweden, which rocket everybody cheese. everybody wants to have back. Yeah, it's, it looked just like that. Shaped like the microphone. Yeah, and you had a, you had a wire. You you pulled off, you know, a slice. And... <laughs> well, welcome everybody. It's Toby Miller here. This is the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in the Caravan Cafe in Exmouth Market in Park Lane. I'm with my friend Michael Tapper from Sweden, from Lund. But Michael, I want you to pronounce both your names as you would if you were in Lund or Malmö. Okay. How would you say Michael? In Swedish it would be Mikael Tapper. Mikael Tapper. Yes, and my surname Tapper is Brave in English. So it's an old soldier's name. So, oh, really? so it probably was Persson or Swenson or Anderson or some, something right. like that but before. It's an indication of your warlike personality. <laughs> <laughs> so this is on the kind of machismo register. No, I, I actually trained Kuyokushin karate, but but I, I don't favor the fighting. I favor uh, uh, kata and you know the whole artistic, uh, yeah, so spiritual element. Oh yeah, yeah, I really like that. Yeah, I think it's aesthetically superb. It really suits my my mind. <laughs> right, right, right. So tell us a bit about that. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I used to be a long distance runner for many many years. And then I got problems with my knees, so I, I originally started with Kyokushin Karate to, because I have two sons and, and um, they both have Asperger's and I thought that that would be a good, because they, they, they are um, not very good at um, uh, collective sport, you know, with teams and, and uh, football teams. And so, yeah, they want to have, yeah, sports. So I started it with my oldest son, you know, for him, and uh, I didn't think Karate was anything for me, <laughs> which is sort of the same story with many people who started out when they were uh, old. I was 49 when I started, so it's four years ago. Um, but I, I really took to it. Yeah, I was really fascinated by it. I'm not sure how, I'm not, probably not will get a black belt. That's not, that's not very interesting, you know, yeah. my point of age. Is. And are they enjoying it? Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're, they're really good at it. My oldest son is really, it's really very good. Right. Yeah. So it, it gives them something they can do that feels individual. Yeah, which is very much exactly. What looking and for. you can develop the whole point of karate is that you can develop subsequently. I mean, when you're very good, you can develop your own individual style. So. Yes. Um, Michael. We're ready to. Um, the caravan fry up. Uh, scramble, please. Yeah. Um, and or sourdough. Yeah. And do you have orange juice? Yeah, like they have a glass of it. Thank you. He knows I'm paying, so he's ordering. <laughs> I, c I can pay. I no, 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 no. <laughs> None of the guests in the pot. <laughs> I can't be avocado, olive oil, chili flake, sourdough, please, and also sauce. Thank you very much. Love the moustache. Good look. Is that a new feature? No, it's from November. Uh -huh. You don't like the John Waters, the thin line. Yeah. <laughs> Tango. <laughs> so, more moments of masculinity from karate to November. I don't think of myself as speci specifically masculine or anything like that. I've always wondered about that. I always, when I was little, I had to. I mostly played with girls, actually. Played with dolls and, you know, uh, yeah. Casper Theatre, I'm not sure what it's called in English. It's, you know, hand dolls. And, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hand, pu hand puppets. Yeah, Punch and Judy, I yes. think it's called yeah, in English. Yeah, yeah. Punch and Judy. Yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm not that macho. Or... Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Well, that makes it doubly interesting given the reason you're here in London at the moment. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. I I got my. Um, I, I am a film critic for many years in, at Sydsvenska Dagblad. It's a daily paper in Malmo. It's the fourth, fifth biggest newspaper in Sweden. I've yeah. been for 13 years. And um, uh, I got this offer from the Swedish radio to do a spe radio special on James Bond. And you know, there's there's been a number of programs throughout the years. I've listened to many of them on Bond. And um, are they archived? So archived, yeah, yeah. They're very uh, Swedish radio is very good at putting out everything they have. You know, archival stuff. Very, very much available. Yeah, on, on, on the web. They're very, very good. At doing that, so I listened to the programs before, and I decided to do something. Odd. You have to talk something about the Bond that was in the Ian Fleming's novels, and of course in the early films. But it's more interesting, I think, to address the question about what Bond is today and what he might be in the future. And I talked to you about, talked with you yesterday about that. So um, because it seems like the slate is clean now, so you know everything can ha is possible. Everything can happen. Do you think Very, so? so you can, one can leave behind 50 years in a sense. I'm not sure. James Chapman didn't think so when I interviewed him. And so it's very interesting to contrast his views on the, on the subject with yours. Right. And, and who else have you been chatting to? It's mostly academics. Uh, I, met, I met with uh, Daniel Kleinman, who does the main titles. And most of the film team and, and uh, the cast, they are in the US. And they will go on to South America, oh, no, uh, South Africa and to um, Australia, I think. This so they will, they will be occupied. Uh, Skyfall is being released in yeah. a tiered yeah. fashion across the world yeah. and they're present for all these premieres to get publicity. The latest bond picture. Has it been out in Sweden? Yeah, yeah, it was premiered the same day as in, in Britain. So earlier, but in the States and so yeah, on. Yeah. And, and what's been the Swedish reception of it? Very, very good, very I think. Yeah, I was very, I did a review myself, so yeah, and I was very positive because I see it as symbolically very rich. It's very open, it's very open for many interpretations. Uh, it's very interesting the, the um, symbolic meaning of Skyfall and, you know, both points that we shall reveal in this program. Right, we don't want to <laughs> spoil it for those who haven't seen yeah, it. Do you think it's a richer film than most of them or any of them? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's by far the best one. Although many would disagree with me probably because they are champions of, you know. And um, Chapman, for instance, he favours the Roger Moore films because he was brought up on the Roger Moore films. So it's, for him it's, it's very much on, based on his memories. Of what, and for me, I mean, it's Sean Connery will be the original Bond because that, the first films I saw were the Sean Connery didn't he run off to Sweden during the making of You Only Live Twice? <laughs> I haven't heard that. <laughs> you probably know more about that. No, I heard this rumor that he was treated by a psychiatrist yeah. uh, or psychoanalyst in Sweden uh -huh. during the filming in Japan of You Only Live Twice. It could okay. be one of his urban myths, but it might be an interesting thing to look into. Absolutely. For yeah. the program. Mm -hmm. uh, don't repeat it unless you find out that it's really true. <laughs> but I heard that once. Yeah. Yeah. So I read it. Mission, mission, saving your soul uh, in Sweden. <laughs> exactly. So uh, there's greater symbolic depth than in most of them. Yeah. And you can let go of the fact that you grew up with Sean Connery. As I think so. Yeah. I think Daniel Craig is, is a very interesting take. He on looks the more Swedish. That's why you like him. It. It's just <laughs> narcissism. It looks more working class. That's perhaps why I'm partial to, <laughs> to Daniel Craig right. because I'm working class myself. 
So perhaps we can touch on that for a moment, uh, uh, You mentioned coming from a working class background yeah. uh, and being a film critic for 30 years. We 13, 13. 13 years. Yeah, right? I, I worked a lot with the encyclopedias before that. Encyclopedias, so, right. Yeah, so you also right. edited a film magazine yeah, slash for uh, eight, nine years, yeah. Tell us about the transformation that you experienced from a working class background to a highly educated one, you're a university professor, you're an author not only of many reviews, but of a new book we're going to talk about in a moment. Mm. What, what's that transformation been like, given your... Well, I am, I am not a university professor, I'm not even employed at the university, but I've written a dissertation and I, you know... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. No. <laughs> right, right. I might be, I'm, I'm not really sure uh, about the career. Uh, but I've written two books so far. I've written a big dissertation on, on uh, Swedish cops in novels and films from 1965 to 2010. It's uh, 859 pa thrilling pages. Thrilling pages. <laughs> it's a seat of your pants, adrenaline punching Exactly. Ride. Page turner. You, once you start, <laughs> you can't stop. No. You can't put it down. And if you do, yeah. if it lands on your child's head, they might get brain damage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you might, might pass out or something. You know? and you, when you begin in the morning, you have to start all over again because you lost the memory of what you have read. <laughs> so, and this book is out in Swedish. Yep, it's, um, it came out last year. What's the title in Swedish? In Swedish, it's called uh, Swedish. Uh, let's see. We just say Swedish. Yeah, Snuten i Skymningslandet, Svenska poliser i roman och film, 1965-2010. So it's uh, the cop in the Twilight Land. Right. Swedish police narratives in in um, in uh, novels and film. Like, who published it in Sweden? In Sweden, it's Nordic Academic Press. Nordic Academic Press. I saw the book. It's a Lund, Lund based from Lund in the south. Yeah. And tell us uh, about its future in English. It's coming out with a British publisher, isn't it? Yeah, it's coming out on Intellect Books next year. So uh, I'm going to edit it and revise it slightly, and I'm going to cut out some of the bits and pieces that are not very interesting for an English or American audience. Thank you. Well, a lot of the reception I sort of just summarize instead of going into lengths about it, uh, which I do in the Swedish edition. It's very much like a, it's almost like an encyclopedia, so I'm, I might be damaged from that background uh, because you can sort of enter any place you want to in the book. And you know, right. if you just want to read about Leif Gevepersson, Jan Giu, or Stig Larsson, or whatever, whomever. But the English um, version is going to be slightly different. So I'm going to cut out uh, uh, one author called Olof Svedele. He was a kind of Swedish dime novelist, if you can imagine that. He wrote, in 40 years, he wrote 184 novels. He was called lazy. Sweden's fastest writer. <laughs> I call that lazy. <laughs> you call that lazy. You almost, have, you almost have written as many books, haven't you? So... <clears throat> This is very much the right time for such a book to come out in English because of obviously Stieg Larsson and that phenomenon but the fact that Nordic crime fiction in general yeah. has become such a big deal in the last 10 years, the last five years on television in particular. I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about the Stieg Larsson phenomenon from your perspective, the trilogy, the original films, the Hollywood remake involving your boyfriend Daniel Craig. Yeah, uh, <laughs> my boyfriend. <laughs> 
Um, my wife would be surprised to hear about it. <laughs> What's your wife's name? Marita. Marita Hai. Yeah. yeah, she's probably listening. I'm, I'm not really sure. She's at work, probably. She's a librarian. She's well, one of the pillars a, of society. Be, unlike, <laughs> unlike me. <laughs> it'll be available online in a couple of hours. So she'll uh, do it at her leisure. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, Stig Larsson phenomenon. I think Stig Larsson, he's from the same generation as me. He was born in 1954. I'm, from, I'm born in 1959. So, but we're from the science fiction sort of fan age. He was a science fiction when I was... We had a big science fiction sort of cult following in Sweden in the 1960s and 70s, which I thought had a great impact on us. So science fiction, would, for me, will always be sort of... have a special place in my heart. And also Marita is also a big fan of science fiction, which makes the relationship even, <laughs> even greater. <laughs> but um, we fancy science fiction. Um, so Stig Larsson was a very genre-savvy person. English Thank you. Stig Larsson is a very genre-savvy uh, writer. He didn't write any fiction until he wrote the, those novels. So that, that was a completely new thing. He was a journalist, self-trained journalist. He was originally a Trotskyist, so he's working for a paper called The Internationale, Trotskyist uh, paper in Sweden, which is rather good, actually. Even if you're not a Trotskyist, it's, it's very good. Uh, and um, then in the 1990s he started a, a new magazine called Exposé, which was all about the new right-wing, extremist uh, right-wing uh, organizations, not only in Sweden, but in, in all over Europe and in America. And had a lot of contacts, he had a big network of, of um, fellow journalists in all other countries. So Exposé, which is still around, it's, it's a foundation. Uh, it, it, um, it publishes very many things about you know, neo-Nazis and what we call costume Nazis in Sweden. People who try to make themselves out of something else, you know, social conservatives, but deep down they're really sort of hardline Nazis, uh, if you look at it closer. Uh, and we had one of these parties in, in the parliament in Sweden today, unfortunately. And it's, it's funny, for a lot of people of our generation, we venerate Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, Iceland. We hold them up as social democratic ideals. Yeah. Little remembering Quisling, yeah. little remembering your former king. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and the way that there were these terrible collaborationist tendencies, exactly. just as they were in Britain, the United States. We sold iron, we had a transit traffic from Germany going up to Norway and Finland, etc. Very long-standing, very weak on Nazism. We haven't sort of really dealt with that in Swedish history, I think. Yeah. 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 We're so wrapped in the idea of these places as fair-minded, tending towards social justice, equal in economic distribution, still convinced by the arguments for a welfare system, and above all, being unprejudiced. But it's quite a shock. I think Stieg Larsson's work helps to lift the veil on that for a lot of outsiders, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think so. There are special... It's very different, in, depending on where you go in Sweden. If you see, look at the... If you want to discuss the Nazi legacy because it could differ very 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 much you know just a few miles apart there could be villages with uh, how do you say not the uh, sight guys but a completely different spirit of you know people living there 
So just you know, a couple of miles from where I live, there is a small village called Sjöbo, which is notorious in Sweden because it, uh, they they were notorious in the 1940s for or 1930s and 40s for having a very strong Nazi movement. And if you just go a, f a couple of miles ahead, you know, you come to Tumalilla, which is a very nice village. It hasn't got any Nazis at all, so they have no Nazi legacy. And you have various regions in Sweden like that. You have the, up uh, in, in uh, Bohuslän, for instance, there were fishermen there were strong neo-Nazi. Uh, and, and when neo-Nazis came, Nazis came back in Sweden, you saw that they came back in, in exactly the same places. In the same places. So the legacy never, and usually rural places, right. uh, villages, and but also Gothenburg, for instance. Had strong Nazis, but they was also strong anti-Nazis and strong communists. So there was very sort of, um, how do you say, a very polarized yeah, society, society. Yeah, class uh, class society also. When uh, now Michael's food just arrived, and I want him to have the opportunity. You have to talk for a while. It gets so. too cold. So I'll Excellent talk food. For a moment. Uh, I started reading the Stieg Larsson novels as soon as they came out in English. In fact, the third one I bought the day it came out in Stockholm in Stockholm, at Stockholm Airport, in English. The day it came out in Sweden, it was already available in Sweden in English. Yeah. And uh, I liked the novels very much. I also liked the original films. In our conversation yesterday, when Michael and I had been talking about Bond, we moved on later to discuss briefly the Stieg Larsson trilogy. And one of the things you told me, Michael, was that the translations are very poor. In your opinion, yeah. it's both yeah. linguistically, but also in that they have they are shortened versions that leave out really a great deal of context and above all politics. Yeah. Now, I'll have one more. <laughs> you see, my plate listeners is quite modest because I'm a modest person. Michael, because he has to feed his karate and his masculinity, has ordered a vast amount of food, and he must be given time to have it. At least a little bit more, one more mushroom. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. But seriously, could you tell us a little bit about what you see as the problems? Uh, what's missing? I haven't dealt with that in detail, and I don't deal with that very much in my book. I just mention it because it's it's out. It's uh, I have um, there's a, a a friend to Stieg Larsson, who I know slightly, called John Henry Holmberg, and he has written uh, extensively about that in an essay, um, in an anthology, which I can't remember the name of, but if you look up John Henry Holmberg on Amazon, you'll probably find the book. It's about, um, it has a title slightly alluding to the Stieg Larsson novel, so the, the girl who something, uh, <laughs> I can't remember exactly. <laughs> but. He, point, he contacted money. me about that because I sent him the script before the, my book was published and he, he immediately replied, you have to look at you know, the translations, they are horrible. Because I couldn't make sense of, of the Ameri some American reviews which said how poorly they were, how, uh, how uh, generically lazy they were and, and, and I sort of wondered about that, you know, if they were, and they were all about sex and uh, violence and sadism, etc. Very much the same criticism as the early Bond novels. Yes, yes. So I was very confused about that because they're very politically uh, charged, they're very politically conscious novels, uh, very feminist novels. So I was kind of wondered about that. Um, but then I started, I just read 
50, 60 pages. I saw, I, I, it was a revelation. It was just a completely different novel from the Swedish edition. But what happened probably has been that his, he, didn't, he had a common law, law wife and the reason that they, didn't, they weren't married, at least as she tells the story, because he, as many of you probably know, Stig Larsson died of a heart attack just a month, two, three months before his books were published. Just suddenly, out of the blue, he got a heart attack and died on the spot. Not really that surprising for people who knew him because he was a chain smoker. So, he, but but there were no signs of, of ill health. So anyway, since they were not married, his the the, the heritage, the leg, the, the, the books and the rights, the copyrights, did not went to his his girlfriend. And there's a huge battle with uh, huge his battle. Father. I'm not sure it's if it's solved because yeah. she supposedly have the fourth mysterious disappeared <laughs> Stig Larsson novel. So she has a trump card so, uh, to use, but uh, uh, what happened was that his brother and his father, who he hasn't been very close to, as I imagine, they took over the rights and they probably, you know, sold it off for money and they made a lot of money with this Dave Larson books. I think in 2000 and early 2011 they passed the 60 million mark, so they have, I think he's the second fiction writer uh, after Dan Brown to sell, you know, to be the best-selling author in the early 2000s, up until 2010. So we're talking a lot of money. <laughs> and these translations have turned it more into pulp fiction than it was in the original version. Yeah, I think you have to read the John Henry Holmberg essay. He's much better. He has really, he, he's, an, he's a veteran translator. He's also, he has known Stig Larsson since Stig Larsson was a teenager because John Henry Holmberg is a key figure in this science fiction sort of... Could you spell uh, his last name? Holmberg, H-O-L-M-B-E-R-G. Holmberg. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, let's get back to your book. Your book isn't only about Stieg Larsson, of course. There's only one figure in it. Yeah. Could you tell us um, about some of the other writers and film adaptations? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a, it's a huge book. It's it's a political history of of the Swedish police novel and film. And it's also a political history of my life, you could say, because it's, uh, as I found, you know, when I started reading, it's, I'm born in 1959, you know, and, it, and police fiction in Sweden, modern police, modern crime fiction, st really started in Sjöbalvala in 1965 and their the first police novel called the, the first Martin Beck novel for those of you who know the main the main policeman in the stories uh, they started out in 1965 that, that was the beginning of a social realist political crime fiction that has come to be the sort of trademark Swedish uh, the, the trademark of Swedish crime fiction so it's it's really a political history of my time and it's also about the welfare state since Sweden was sort of in the forefront of, of developing uh, the modern what many call a socialist or a sort of pinko uh, socialist uh, or a third way uh, well kind of welfare state in between not being a cap all capitalist or all communist but something yeah. you know a third at all so it's, it's a kind of yeah. model for the third way rhetoric of Anthony yeah. Giddens yeah. and Tony Blair in reality I can for my point of view I'm, I'm 
from the labor movement originally. So uh, um, it, it's it's not that different really from social liberalism. I mean, it's it's basically the same thing. Uh, social democracy and social liberalism has much more in common than social democracy and, and communist, Stalinism or you know Maoism or whatever. So the project is not that on the welfare state project in Sweden was not that unlike from the welfare state project in America or in Britain or in Japan or in Canada or you know wherever. It might be that we were a bit more radical. We were more in the forefront. Many people came to Sweden to look on the health system for instance and you know because we were developing it very rapidly because we had an explosive economical growth after the Second World War, so we could afford to develop a very modern welfare state. Whereas many, I mean Britain was bombed and, you know, devastated. whereas we sold weapons, and no, not <laughs> weapons, but we sold iron to everybody, you know, so... Uh, well, you're <laughs> equal opportunity <laughs> participants. I think it's, 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 a, it's a horrible legacy, really. Well, but, um, yes, but <laughs> the British are often rather proud of not being in Vietnam, but they assisted the United States in its war in yeah. Vietnam massively. Mm -hmm. um, so, you mentioned Martin Beck as being the figure so crucial to this. I was reading one of the Beck uh, novels last year, I think I mentioned it to you, and there's a wonderful phrase in there that is about Hollywood cinema where he says something to the effect of, ah yes, well, Hollywood and film, they're well known for wasting everything. I found this really suggestive and interesting. Uh, it couldn't be over-interpreting things, especially when you're no. looking at a translation. No. But I found it interesting both in terms of an idea of wasting talent, something metaphorical, and an idea of wasting materials, something ecological. I found the novel very suggestive, although, again, it really reads like it needs to be rewritten by native speakers. Yeah, it might be. I haven't looked at the English or American versions of the of the, the Fuerbalbada novels. I haven't done that. So the, I'm not sure if they got the same treatment. Probably not, because they early on in their career they got this Edgar Allan Poe Award, which was very sort of right. prestigious in America. So I, they were probably treated better than Stig Larsson, I imagine, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the translations. Oh no, well there's no doubt, I'm sure that's right, mm. that there wasn't an attempt to dumb them down. Mm. Um, but <laughs> the relationship between hard-boiled or noir fiction, fiction of the detective with a code, and popular cinema is quite a powerful one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, we think of the original noir stories in France and in the United States, and obviously people like Chandler and Hammett, um, who of course are before your, your time period, but nevertheless are the parents of each of this, the great stylists of American English. Uh, and is it the case that a lot of the writers within a more social realist tradition that you're investigating are also very connected to other popular cultural films, are thinking about television, or thinking about cinema? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <coughs> Pervale was a film critic. It's important to know he was a crime journalist and a film critic. So Same kind of job, really. <laughs> In a way, yes. <coughs> And the important to know is that they were both uh, Marxist-Leninists uh, of the Stalinist 
variation. They were members, both members of the old school Comintern, the Communist Party in Sweden. So, but, but nevertheless, Per Wall was very keen on westerns, <laughs> for instance. He wrote very favorably of Henry Hathaway and John Ford, and you know what. So, and he was very, also like Stig Austin, he was very genre savvy. He had read a lot of crime stories, so he knew what he was sort of writing when he started. He knew what he was getting into. But his earliest books are more experimental, they are more like uh, investigative, almost like new journalism in a way. It's uh, like it's part fiction, but it's also based very much on his travels to Spain, fascist Spain, and to South America and various places. And, and uh, he mixes fiction and facts and, and, uh, uh, in his story. So it's close to, I, I can imagine also that he had read uh, Truman Capote's In Co. of Blood when they started right, where, where yeah. there's a whole new genre mm. of writing. Many, many of Fuebalbalo's books are reviewed as kind of documentaries on their contemporary times because they wrote usually about what happened. They usually include a lot of things have, that happened a year or a half, six months before the novel came out. So they were very contemporary. They were very sort of. It's not dissimilar in that sense to Hammett as a former detective. No. Writing in the way that he did. Very interesting. Yeah. And you've got to have some more food. I've got to have some more. Very but, but, but important in this yeah. context is also to know. <laughs> I can go on for hours and hours. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> but it's important to know that for them, the social democracy and the welfare state project was the main enemy because they, it competed with their own vision of a communist revolution and the communist society. Uh, so for them... For social fascism. Yeah, yeah, social fascism, which is a Stalinist concept. Stalinist in the concept. 19, Parliamentary cretinism is another great... 1920s. <laughs> <laughs> and so they have a lot... They were very popular not only among the new left but also among conservatives because they, for them, the welfare state was sort of a moral abyss. It was uh, um, having sexual liberation, having women's liberation meant that you know everything was up for grabs. There were no morality anymore. The sexual perversity would run rampant in the streets, etc., etc. And that's also the case in the, in the, in the Fuebal Valle novels. Yeah, very moralist. Very moral, very yeah. social conservative yes. in, in a rather staggering way. Yes. You know, yes. Whereas for people of my generation, Sweden was thought of as the great sexual liberation site, actually, both in terms of feminism but also in terms of a libertarian version of sex, which of course is not necessarily contradictory with feminism, but was in some sort of tension a lot of the time, of course. That's fascinating. So, I think that sexual liberation in Sweden has been misinterpreted a lot because it's been interpreted as kind of, you know, everything's up for grabs, everything yes. is free. What it is, it's really, it's anti-patriarchalism, yeah. it's anti-patriarchy. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's not that everybody, you know, is available for fucking. Or no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I think in, uh, in the Stieg Larsson novels, uh, the thing that they do have in common with Bond mm. is that women, with the Ian Fleming novels, women will have sex because they want to. Yeah. They feel like it, they fancy the other person. Not necessarily because they love the other person. Yeah. And this, I think, is a very important critique of Patrick. Exactly. They have a sexuality like sort of the Playboy version of male sexuality. Yes. Yeah. They allow themselves to yeah. indulge in their own yeah. sexual urges. So. Yeah. And 
why not? I mean. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'm I'm still worried about your. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I see. You have to. You have to. I see about six bits of mushroom. Ex exactly. I see yeah, two or yeah. three bits of bacon. I Please see go bread. on. Please I go on. Bread. Well, uh, so I wanted us to, to go back a little bit yeah. uh, in time. Uh, talk about your background, how you came to be a film cultural intellectual. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'd like us to talk about is the state of criticism. Uh, because in the United States, where I've been living for the last 20 years, yeah. newspapers, radio stations and TV stations, to the extent that they ever had these people, are laying off critics. Yeah. Jobs as full-time film critics, drama critics, television critics are gone or going mm. at the same time as there is an incredible efflorescence of criticism mm. through the web where everybody can be a critic. Mm. So at one level, critical writing has never had more outlets or more people. At another level, the expertise, the familiarity and the centrality of a particular line to a newspaper or even a radio or TV station is missing, it's lacking. And not only in film and television, it's also true of books, that the literary review sections of newspapers are shrinking and so on. So I wondered if we could talk both about, and he's made great inroads, listeners, into that breakfast, and now he's wolfing down some tea. I wonder if we could talk both about your background, mm. but also about the crisis that's going on now, and what that looks like from Sweden, mm. and from your own perspective as a very experienced film person. Yeah, um, I was hoping, when you talked about the criticism of, of film criticism, <laughs> the crisis of film criticism, um, uh, I was I had hoped to see and listen to uh, John Hoberman in Milwaukee when I was there in the conference in late September, but uh, unfortunately my plane left just you know an hour hour uh, the hour after his lecture, so I couldn't make it. But I think he, his case uh, opened eyes for many that he was dismissed from Jim Hoberman's voice. Jim Hoberman, the most famous yeah. film critic in the United States, just yeah. lost his job. Yeah, he lost his job, and you can see that in if you used to read um, Village Voice on the on the internet, as, as I am, uh, you could notice that there is a radical change in the way, uh, in the criticism of Village Voice, where, where uh, Jim Hoberman was used to be very critical, very had his own voice, it's very much, you know, in line with mainstreaming film criticism, the way the film criticism today in, in Village Voice. So, I mean, it doesn't very, differ very much from... A magnificent writer, um, the books he produces are terrific, mm. his briefest reviews mm. were wonderful examples of writing in English and also of being able to bring together theoretical yeah. ideas, political yeah. ideas and narrative. And he's also the last of the sort of Pauline Kael era, which I really like, the, or Manny Faber, or you know, the, the big famous uh, American... Yeah. Termite criticism, Manny yeah. Faber. Yeah. And also going out on a limb, just, you know, not, not being in fear of pushing the envelope, not being in fear of being completely different from all the other critics, or going against the, 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 the grain, or how do you say? Yeah, going, yep. yeah. And that, that's what I miss today a lot. In Sweden, there's, uh, I mean, that's everywhere, there's a crisis in, in daily papers and in media in general. So there's a lot of cutbacks, and just before I left, I think there were... Th 
30 or 40 critics from uh, one of the major dailies, Svenska Dagbladet in Stockholm, were laid off. They were, or their contracts were sort of full. They were freelancers on the contract, as I am, uh, a film critic. Both literary critics, art critics, uh, film critics. <coughs> Many others has, have left. I have a few friends who have, like me, both scholars and critics. They have left to be, become full-time scholars because there's no there's, there's no no work for them in, in daily papers. So it's, it's a shame, really. Uh, my own background. Well, I'm. I was. Uh, the reason I left. I was factory worker for a while, and, and uh, I left because um, I wanted to study philosophy. But then I suddenly realized I knew nothing of universities. I nobody in my family or you know had studied at universities. But when I came to the university, I suddenly realized you know there was a thing called cinema studies. <laughs> I, I didn't realize you could actually study cinema at universities at uni as an academic subject. I had never you know come in contact with that. I knew that there was in America. There were universities, you know, with it. but we had it in Sweden as well. So I immediately jumped to <laughs> cinema studies, and we had um, um, a film. And we had a film society in Lund, which was rather big. So I also was became the chairman there, and I, you know, for several years in the 1980s. And we had retrospect. It's almost like a cinema tech, four, four, five days a week. Hitchcock, Bergman, you know, whatever, and and also lots of films that we borrowed from England, actually, that hadn't got premiered in, in Sweden. So. Which factory? Were, what kind of factory had you been? Uh, chemical factory. Chemical factory. Yeah, and I really, the day I, I left, uh, I worked there for two years. And the day I left, I I read this report that you got brain cancer from doing exactly the type of work that I did. So. <laughs> You've got brain tumor. Eh? It, it was phosphoric acid, I think it's called in English, um, for making um, uh, soap and um, um, washing powder and um, dish. Uh, how do you say dish? Uh, Dishwashing powder. Dish powder. Yeah. Wow. So you go from that to philosophy to protect your yeah, brain I, from I, the cancer. I, uh, then you discover that universities are interested in moving pictures <laughs> with sounds. So, so you move on again. Extremely strange. Yeah. No, 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 not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, before that, I, I was involved in. Um, uh, I was, as I said, uh, in the labor movement for when I was a teenager. And, you know, so I got to see Olof Palme and Targa Lander. And, you know, um, but I was. Uh, how do you say disillusioned by uh, some of the things going on behind the not not the, on a national level because I was not involved there I was just uh, 14 15 but on the local level so I, I left in anger sort of and I become involved in the music uh, the free music movement you know arranging concerts uh, progressive music etc and then for a while I occupied houses in Stockholm so I was, in, <laughs> I was there for a number of years I came back to finish my high school or gymnasium as we had in Sweden and um, then I worked at the factory and I didn't know what to do so I just after two years I said I had to get out now it's now or never you know so. and was it a shock to go to a university after yes. coming from a work definitely yeah. because you're the, the notion is, I mean, it's, I expect it's the same as in, in all class societies as in Britain, that everybody's welcome. But you're welcome to study, but you're not welcome into the inner circles of sort of 
the social elite, uh, because you have to to uh, either be born into it, or you have to be such an excellent student, or you have to be politically sort of in line with conservative thinking uh, and being able to contribute to to uh, conservative thinking to be able to be invited into those circles. Yeah. Or, and to feel comfortable. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, you, you muddle through, and in fact you get very involved in university, or yeah. not only studying, but you're also helping to organize cultural events. Mm. Uh, and what age do you graduate with your undergrad? Well, I, I worked for a number of years with the film. The film society got to be really big. We had at one time, we had, I think we had 17 or 1800 members. So it was like more like a full-time job. So it stretched. So I didn't really get my bachelor uh, until um, I was 29. I think. 29. <laughs> I started out when I was 23. So yeah. 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 So, you know, it's a little I worked for. I drove cabs and I did various yeah, yeah. other sure, stuff. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. And then you're 29. You've got your degree. You've been working at the film society. Yeah. Yeah. He's only got three and a half mushrooms left, by the way. Exactly, I have to eat. Almost all the bacon. You talk about your background, man. <laughs> and then, then I start, so suddenly realized I didn't want to be a film scholar. So I went into medical school. You went to medical school? Yeah. For a year. But then I met my wife and we had a kid. I suddenly realized that I can't, I can't have any time with the kids if I'm going to go to medical school and then be trained as a doctor. So I went back to film scholarship, again, film studies again. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it was in a sense of family decision. Yeah, I was into postgraduate, uh, but uh, I, because you know, I sensed that being a physician or you know was something better for the whole world or something. I was going to make a difference. Slightly more valuable. Who needs a film critic or a film scholar? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> Say such a thing. <laughs> yeah. But I've always loved cinema, so it's, it was no. Uh, and I, I, I also started to work a lot with the encyclopedias. So we had this big na national encyclopedia, it's m much like the British Encyclopedia Britannica. So I got lots of jobs from that, and I also worked with something called the Swedish Filmography, which is. Uh, goes through all Swedish film history and uh, with all the credits, all um, it's um, you do a synopsis and you do um, summarize the, the reception of the film and then you have a commentary about you know if, whether any debates about the film or any controversy, censorship problems. So I did that for a number of years. <laughs> And I did another encyclopedia, sort of freestanding encyclopedia, where I was the only film, film expert. And so I, I got a lot of work after leaving medical school. So. And when did you start the magazine? I took over. I didn't start the oh, magazine. The, 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 the magazine, um, it's uh, called Filmheftet, Film Leaflet. It, it's, it's like Cahier de Cinema in Swedish. Uh, notebook on films or something. Um, it start, that was an, uh, a, a scholarly film journal that started out in Uppsala, the other big university town in Sweden, um, in 1973. And they were in a crisis. Nobody wanted to take it, you know. It seemed that it had no future. So I just, you know, I took it over and I started to use this, or I make use of some contacts I had internationally. So my first big contributor from outside Sweden was Robbie Wood. 
whom I really got to know and, 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 and like, and I had a lot of correspondence with him. And, and actually, a colleague of mine has written a dissertation on Robin Wood's criticism. Very important critic, of course, uh, on Hitchcock especially. Yeah, a gay, gay critic also. But also on questions of authorship was very involved in the magazine slash journal movie here in Britain in contradistinction to a screen. Yeah. And through him I got a lot of other contacts. And then I met people at places like conferences at Porta Naune, where there's a silent film festival every year. Um, in Italy? In Italy, yeah. Very nice uh, place to meet people and, and talk with them. Um, met uh, Pat McGilligan, who's coming over now from, from the US. He's, an, he's not a scholar uh, proper, he's more like a film journalist who turned into, he's produced an enor enormous amount of books, biographies, um, on Hitchcock, for instance, which are very good. Uh, but he's also teaching at universities, although he hasn't got the. Uh, I don't, don't think he has made a dissertation or written a dissertation, but still, he's. he's uh, so he's coming over to Lund now, uh, hopefully in, in spring. Uh, so I got to know him, and through all these people, I got to know other people. So they spread out. And, uh, um, a few years, uh, I got hundred perhaps people from all over the world. I mean, people even from India, from China, from Hong Kong, from uh, Australia, etc. And many, many, many Americans. I have to to say that that Americans were very, very generous. They were very sort of. What are you going to do next? I want to be in that issue. I have this idea, and they were very sort of. I, I like that, you know, uh, hands-on attitude. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, we can do that. You know, yeah. it's no, no. Whereas in Sweden, as you might know, in England from Notting Hill, you know, everybody sits around wine, see there's nothing you could do, <laughs> blah, blah blah. You know, and nobody gets to do anything. Right, right, right. Everybody just wines. So it's whereas you know, we can do that attitude. Yeah. I think it's yeah. very refreshing. Yeah. So yeah, I've got, and that's how I got to know you. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the magazine is remarkable. Uh, it's now transformed, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I transformed it in 2002 into an English film international. Film international. Yeah, and still around. I am not the editor. I stopped in 2005. Right. But I signed a contract with Intellect. So they took it over. What's in the nick of time? Because um, the um, the grants for journals like that has sort of decreased, decreased, decreased. And I, I think there's hardly any money to from the Swedish states to 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 get. That's too bad. An intellect, a Bristol-based publisher yeah. here in the UK, has become a very important place for writing about film and television, both in terms of books and journals. And uh, those of you familiar with a journal that I used to be involved with, or I'm still involved with, television and new media, we did a special issue commemorating the life and work of Manuel Alvarado, who died two and a half years ago and that special issue has some material about his last work which really was operating as an editorial advisor to intellect it's a very interesting project intellect i say this as someone who has no financial involvement in it but it's one of the few publishers around that is prepared to support uh, interesting theoretical should interview masood uh, corresponded with haven't met. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a, a good place to support if you are interested. So 
you get going with Film Hefty, Film International, mm -hmm. uh, and you're intimately involved with that for a decade, so. And then 2005, you hand that over. Is this the point where you decide that you'll do a dissertation, do a yes. PhD? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I couldn't find the time. I did everything. I did uh, translations when it was in Swedish. I did got stills. And, you know, I did the layout. I did everything. Yeah. Well, you translated <laughs> my work very kindly. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I did. And so it was a huge effort. And it was thicker and thicker and bigger. <laughs> I made bigger issues for every issue. It was bigger than the other, well, than the previous one. So it got to be very crazy. I didn't have a private life almost. So. And so the there was a crisis, crisis in my relation with my wife at one some point. So. The whole idea of not going to medical school in order to develop, <laughs> develop more time to the family, in fact, <laughs> saw you earning no money, unlike as a doctor, and with probably less time to devote to the family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, well, the point is that I work a lot of in, at home, so that's good for the kids. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So I'm around, you know, but so as soon as they go to bed, I immediately dash off to the desk again, um, which is not that good, but, you know. I'm kind of a workaholic, I think, in that sense, yeah. Fear. Always driven. I'm, I think so. I have a lot of ideas. The, the thing is that as soon as you start writing something, you immediately get 10, 15 ideas for something else to write. Because you say, I can't have this in this book because it will be too much. But in next book, perhaps, you know, I can do develop that ideas, these ideas. And um, so... The, the, the suggestion for all of you who has writing cramps or you know just start writing and sort of things gonna go from there you know you get you get ideas by writing yes, for, new, for by new writing. for new projects yeah. I think that's why you are so productive as well uh, so in other words that empty screen or that blank page mm. actually isn't really empty or blank mm. because you've got lots of words coursing through your mind mm. write some of them down exactly yeah. yeah do notes even if they're about your own circumstance your own condition of mm. frustration exactly yeah. and a sense of incapacity to produce to generate just write those words down yeah? Yeah, exactly. Get product out, mm -hmm. in a sense. Um, so then you go and do the PhD, and now you're in a situation, like a lot of people in journalism, you're highly qualified, both in terms of your professional background and academically, and you're in one of these in-between circumstances, aren't you? Yeah. You are both a scholar, mm -hmm. a theorist, a historian, and a critic, uh, at the same time as you are a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing a lot of that at City University where I'm working now, where they have a very distinguished journalism department. The same thing is happening at the University of Cardiff, which I know is starting again a very distinguished journalism department. Lots of these interesting folks who are roughly your age are moving more into academia. Yeah. yeah. It's probably because of the crisis in media. It's uh, a nice sense also that <coughs> whereas the, the bourgeois ideal of you know the independent film critic is more of an illusion, I think. It's they, they really want to have film critics that are quoted in ads that you know five stars or five whatever, you know, from this and that person. 
Well, we had that famous case in Connecticut where I think it was Sony invented a film critique. Yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah, it's, it's more important than ever in the rhetoric of films. As I said before, there are more critics than ever before. There are more outlets. Yeah. But they're not the outlets that we were used to. Yeah. I mean, you could start your own uh, web magazine or web film criticism, but you won't make very much money of it, would you? How do you survive? These things have often been done for love more than money. But as people get older, they have more commitments. Yeah, I know. Fortunately, my wife has a good salary. She's got a real job. She's got a real. Every, yeah, she's the she's the real pillar of society. Yeah. Librarians are one of the pillars of society. I think. Yes. Oh, absolutely, and yeah. the civilized pillars of civilization. Yeah. Yeah, pillars of civilization, and also. On the front line of intellectual activity, unfortunate to use a slightly militaristic metaphor, but if I can get away from that, they're on the avant-garde of intellectual activity because they... I thought you were going to say the Valkyria, so... <laughs> God, my Germanic past darkly emerging from the shadows into the bright lights of narcissistic day, expressing itself in its full Wagnerian horror. But no, librarian's incredibly important. Uh, you see this massively in the pushback against the anti-scientists in the United States. Yeah, yeah. that's very problematic. We've got about five minutes to go. I'd like to ask you now about the future of cinema itself. We've talked about the threats oh. to the media in terms of the press. What about what's going to happen with film? And maybe you could talk about Sweden. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. There is a lot of... Uh, I'm also quite interested on the technical side, and I, I talked with uh, Douglas Trumbull, came to uh, Malmö, which is very close to Lund, um, just a few miles apart. Right. And he talked about the technology of film, and he seemed to be very optimistic about But he's very much into the roller coaster sort of sense of cinema. So he envisioned, you know, 3D cinemas without glasses, hologram cinema, etc., etc. With a but, physical but experience, the physical experience. when you're in a movie theater yeah, yeah. than you'll ever get at home. Exactly, yeah. But from my point of view, I can see my biggest... I whine a lot about bad scripts. I see the big... I, I, and I, I blame author theory a lot for that. Uh, because I think the, the, um, the forgotten... Uh, names in, in cinema is, is the screenwriters really uh, or the screenwriters they, they really left behind nobody really knows who writes the script for a film and that's why we don't get script artists like William Faulkner or Raymond Chandler or you know today Billy Wilder Billy Wilder yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I.A.L. Diamond yeah Fitzgerald mm -hmm. Ben Hecht Ben Hecht <laughs> great scriptwriter wonderful yeah I need to lose yeah um, sure. I, I did a podcast just over there with Bridget Connor mm -hmm. on the weekend, who's written a PhD on screenwriting here in the UK. Yeah. It's very hard not to be romantic about some of those names. But you get people who are writing The Killing, mm -hmm. you get people... I thought but in TV was... you have this phenomenon of producer-writer that right. you don't have in, in, don't in, have in, cinema. in cinema. So you get very strong names yeah. in TV like Stephen Boko or Aaron Sorkin. And yeah. 
Well, sure. extremely good. Alan Ball. And show runners. Yeah. 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 Show runners. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps that's true. So in cinema, your concern is not so much the technology of this <laughs> or that, but the very basic mm -hmm. core of the script exactly. is not being given enough attention. Yeah. That the words and directions, the characterization, must start there. Yeah, sure. And also the visual style, I think, is, is uh, at some... I'm not really sure where it's going. Uh, it, at some point, everybody was trying to be like Bourne, the Bourne, make Bourne films, you know, but they just cut it. Paul Greengrass is a very, very good editor of films, or his films are very, very good edited, because you never lose track of geographical... Well, he's a socialist, uh, he knows what the telos is going exactly. to be. Exactly. <laughs> when Nirvana finally it's, arrives. Uh, thesis, antithesis, and thesis, <laughs> synthesis, in his uh, dialectical... Like, uh, like a true Hegelian chemical work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but... Um, whereas you see a lot of action films like G.I. Joe and a lot of even cop films or ordinary action films, they, you, they just cut, they just throw you around the place. You have no sense of suspense, you have no sense of, of narrative, you don't know where it goes. It's just a showstopper, sort of like a musical sequence with just things going all over the place. It's completely uninteresting. So it's at some point somebody has to sort of... Um, structure scripts again. That's why I found I found the Skyfall quite good because it has a very well structured manuscript. It's a very good structured story. It's classically told. It's not very I mean surprisingly told or it's not avant-garde in any, any way. But it was very refreshing because it's very well narrated, very well structured. And I kind of miss that today. But I also would like to see a sort of a new not a new Nouvelle Vague because I thought that was quite overrated. I, I would like to see somebody pushing, pushing again the envelope somewhere. David Lynch had that in his earliest films before he, before he get he, he got the manner to be a mannerist and, and you also get that in early Brian De Palma is very interesting for uh, 1960s 70s American films the Coppola of the 1960s and 70s are very very good uh, trying to make for instance in, in the conversation uh, a lot of use of sound for instance which is also a very interesting dimension Walter Murch yeah Walter, Walter Murch exactly who's also kind of a, an author in his own sense oh absolutely well he invented sound design and of course he's a great theorist and writer yeah and he's an editor so it's both the sound man and an editor so yeah. it's very influential on Apocalypse Now also and, and, and the whole sort of sound experience of, of um, and they, they really developed a new dimension that's why we have this Dolby Digital DTS etc yeah. Moving away from the, the world cinema stage as defined through Hollywood, the wealthiest film industry, what about in Sweden? Uh, Home of some of the great directors of all time. Oh, sure, yeah. And a, a cinema that goes back uh, over a century. Yeah. We had an early film industry. They were e earlier in Denmark, but... But some of the most famous silent films of all time Phantom Carriage. I'm not that partial to Phantom Carriage. I think Victor Seestrom has made, or first one, as you see in Swedish, uh, he had made far better films. In I like uh, uh, a film that's in English, I think it's called The Outlaw and His Wife, by Eivind and Okans Hustru. It's an, based on an Icelandic tale. 
which is superbly directed. It's, it's, the pho photography is elegant, it's really, really good. So, given that the important trajectory, of course, mm. Ingmar Bergman being so important to many people in the 50s and 60s, especially, but yeah. still today, mm. we've only got about a minute left. Yeah. <laughs> what I would hope to see, if I, I is I would hope to see more of transnational productions. I think we would really benefit from it. I mean, if you look around, going out in London, I see everything that I see back in Sweden, essentially. Not only the stores, but I mean, the culture. We are, we are not that far from each other that, than we were a generation, two generations ago. So I think we would benefit a lot of being a transnational film production. Britain, Sweden, Britain, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, etc. There's a lot of, I think there is a need for more the European cinema in general to be more technically adept. It's not that um, hard to match American technology because you can do a lot with your own computer today. You don't have to need to spend, you know, millions and billions of dollars of effects, etc. And we should do everything that the Americans do because there's no such thing as a primarily American story or something. We, before, in the, in the auteur days, there was also sort of a vice of the auteur days that, that, oh, the Americans, they are going to do, we are going to do art films here and they are going to do, make popular culture. And big, what happened was that we, we, we got an economically sort of very weak industry, whereas we should have, what we should have done, and that's also a vice of the left, I think. Popular culture, conquer popular culture. Yeah, that's where we should be. I think also the fact is a lot of money was spent on making TV great yeah. in those countries. Yeah, yeah. Drama on television much better than the drama they produced as movies. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, thank you so much for this. Thank it's you. been fantastic talking. And I wonder if when your book comes out in English yeah. and you've done your radio show on Bond, yeah. you might revisit the pod oh, yeah, I love to, and yeah. tell us more. Yeah. All right. Happy days. Thank you.